Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. It's so easy to get overwhelmed with book marketing when you consider all of the activities you could devote your time to. There's social media, there's blogging, there are live events, there's speaking engagements, there are interviews on podcasts, there are newsletters, and on and on and on. How do you decide where to focus your efforts? And if you're a creative writer, do these strategies even work for book promotion? Emily Anger, founder of Good Enough Book Marketing, coaches poets, fiction writers, and creative nonfiction authors on how to incorporate minimalist marketing strategies into their creative process so they become successful without feeling overwhelmed. She actually believes that good enough is good enough. In today's episode, Emily is specifically going to help authors grapple with where to devote their time to marketing. Welcome, Emily, to our podcast. We're so excited to have you here today. You are the person behind Good Enough Book Marketing. Can you explain the meaning behind Good Enough for book marketing and what inspired this angle of yours? Absolutely. So first of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm really delighted to be here. That's like the number one question I get is what's up with your weird business name? (laughs) Other brands out there put something in their title like six-figure author or like get a million followers with your books or something like that. And so perhaps it kind of hints a little bit about my strategy when I say I named my business Good Enough Book Marketing. I'm here to reclaim the term good enough from the hustle culture who decided that good enough was not actually good enough and puts too much pressure on people. I teach what I call minimalist marketing for people on the creative side of writing. So fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction. And I teach them how to incorporate a more minimalist approach to their marketing that kind of fits into their lifestyle. So they have more time to be creative and write more books and stay in that creative headspace instead. You focused your coaching on marketing for creative nonfiction, as you just said, in fiction and poetry. What is the core difference between marketing these types of books versus traditional nonfiction or trade books? Where's the gap in marketing in your experience? So in my experience, when I first started marketing books, I took all genres. You know, anytime you start a company, you're just like, give me all the business. Like, I'm not going to be discerning here. I'll just take anything. And I... I had a lot of success with nonfiction. I did. But that's because a lot of the opportunities that exist these days seem to be catered towards nonfiction. If you think of kind of the top advice that's out there, like if you're looking for publicity, you're told what makes you an expert, talk about the thing you're an expert in, and then go do a media tour about that thing. Or if you are going to do content marketing, which is like blogs, newsletters, social media, you are taught, like, so what is, the, what is the content that you focus on, right? What is the topic of your newsletter, right? It's about the content of your book. It's, it's I'm an expert in this thing. I'm going to educate you in this piece. And that's great for nonfiction writers. That's exactly what their audience is looking for. But the advice out there for fiction writers and poets was essentially the exact same advice But somebody had come up with like a a sample, kind of token sample. But if you write fiction, try to use the same avenue, but do it this other way. And it just kind of fell flat. And the truth is, it's harder to market creative writing. It just is. And maybe I'm a little biased because I love the creative side more. But I do see that it's harder to find your that, that kind of ideal audience. It's harder to talk about yourself without feeling like imposter syndrome. And it's hard to know what your angle is when your book is about, each book is about something different. And so I decided that there wasn't a lot of people in my space on, on the marketing side, the promotion side, focusing on this group that, that needed some more help. 
I would just like to say how much I love the name. I love Good Enough because you're absolutely right. There's so much overselling, even for nonfiction books. And, and so people spend really the wrong kind of money often in, in book marketing, thinking that somehow this is like a, like a side hustle that's going to actually add another revenue stream into their life or business, as opposed to something different. And so I just love the name and I think it speaks to honesty and it also speaks to, I think the kind of person who wants to write a book and do some marketing, but doesn't want it to overwhelm their life. Thank you. Thank you. I, that seems to be what I have found when I was first started. I, Emily, I'm anger book marketing. I didn't have a fancy name, you know, and I was working with a lot of indie authors, which is wonderful. I still work with a lot of, lot of indie authors. But then after I rebranded and started going around talking about this concept of good enough, suddenly I was getting consulting uh, requests from authors who were getting deals at like the big five publishers and saying, hey, we want to learn this too. And I think it's because there's this common desire, but also common frustration of like, I can't be a salesperson on top of everything else I'm doing. Teach me how to do it the right way. I don't want to be, I don't want to slack. But but I somebody I have to talk to somebody who is sympathetic with where I'm coming from. So if an author was to come to you today and say, well, what is good enough marketing? I'm sure it varies from project to project, but what are some basics for good enough book marketing? Yes, it very much varies from person to person. It's it's up to your goals too. Like, do you want, do you have a sales goal? Like, I really want to sell this many copies of my book. Well, that's going to be a little different than if you're saying, hey, I just want to make my, sure my book stays in print and make my publisher happy. It's going to be quite, quite different. But I boil marketing down to essentially marketing is two things. It is regular, regularly getting new visibility while at the same time sustaining the relationship with the fans you already have. Right? It's just those two things. You can't drop one or other of the balls in order to grow. But if you just think of it, I just have to do those two things. I just have to continue catering to my fan base while, while every once in a while getting in front of new eyeballs. That's it. And those things can be big, but those things can also be small. And that's up to you, the author, how big or small you want each of those pieces to be. So what are some of the small things that authors can do that are minimal, but have pretty big impact, especially in the fiction, creative writing space? I think of social media is actually a small thing instead of a big thing, which is backwards from how most people think of it. But if you can use social media just occasionally to as a tool for fun, instead of overwhelm yourself with all the advice up there about how to grow to this or that size that can be a way for people to just get to see your personality and your, you know, just post on occasion a couple times a week instead of every single day and making a new reel that you edit every single day that takes you an hour. Like just use it minimally, use the tool minimally, but that's a great way to just get your personality seen because, you know, your, your fans are curious about who the person behind their favorite book is and that gives them a little window into your life. I was digging around your website and you have a lot of great resources on your website that I'd encourage people to go take a look at. But you talk about the importance of an author's brand being personal. And you were alluding to that just now because people connect with personal and that's what leads people and readers to trust you. What does it look like to create a personal brand, maybe in social media and maybe if not in social media, what are some other ways to create a personal brand? What are some other avenues to do this? Yeah, so a personal brand is something that I encourage all writers of all genres to think about before they kind of get exposure and, and new visibility in the world. And and it's really just a setting, it's a setting up of boundaries while at the same time understand it's self-awareness, understanding about who you are as a person, but also who you are as a professional. And so I even teach workshops on this. And when I do, I have like a brand guide printout. And I help authors go through it. And I want you to sit down and think about, you know, what are not only the themes of your book and the things that are obvious, but like, what causes do you support as a person? What hobbies do you have outside of writing that, you know, could help people get to know you? 
certainly there's stuff in there about, you know, your target audience and who are you talking to. That's in there too. But a personal brand even comes down to things like tone, right? So we know that our books have a voice, but your marketing has a voice too. And it should be your voice. It should be something authentic to you, but it should be something that you are aware of so that you know, oh, this, that's right. This is what I sound like. I don't have to be overly formal. You should be create, writing even your marketing content in a way that sounds like you wrote it, not chat GPT, right? Like <laughs> if you want, if you're worried about technology taking over the world, it, make sure you, you sound like you then. Otherwise, people aren't going to be able to tell the difference between you and a robot. So talk about a little bit about people who are really fearful of building this personal brand because it feels like they're maybe exposing a little bit too much of themselves. What are what tips do you give them to being personal if they're especially adverse to being vulnerable? And how much do you encourage authors to be vulnerable or share parts of themselves? What does that look like especially? I set boundaries, 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 boundaries. Everything in the digital space needs to come down to boundaries. And that's why it's important to think about your brand like before you, you go out there. And of course, if you're, you've already been posting and you already have a following, I'm not saying it's too late, of course. But it is an early step in deciding, okay, what boundaries am I going to have? And I encourage writers to actually sit down and make the list. Like, I will not talk about my kids. Or I will talk about my kids, but I will not talk about their health issues. Like actually like make sure you've thought about these things before you do it. And when it comes to being vulnerable, the same thing applies. You know, we are, we are attracted to vulnerability because we are all struggle with it. So when we see somebody else being vulnerable, we appreciate that. But there have certainly been a lot of people that we've seen online that have taken vulnerability too far, right? Like they're trying to use vulnerability to cash in. And that's like not sincere anymore. So, so literally just thinking about like, I will share about my struggles with writer's block, right? That can be a very vulnerable thing. Or I will share my history with, with food and a past eating disorder, or a current one, right? Because I'm willing to talk about this because I feel like I'm an expert in this but maybe not talk about some other thing that's a little too close to your heart and that, you, and that you're not in a place to receive criticism from because, gosh, the internet is mean as much as there are nice people out there. The, the better you do online usually means the more trolls you're going to get. In fact, kind of a, a joke that I have is I know a video is doing well when I start to see trolls leave comments <laughs> like, oh, like, oh, it's a measure of success now. I've gotten more reach than I usually do because the trolls are out. So it's really about like, what can you handle in terms of visibility? And if you can't, then maybe it's time to move to newsletters or email marketing where people are not leaving comments about that stuff. Maybe you don't be vulnerable at all on social media, but you do be vulnerable in a newsletter where yes, people can reply, but they often don't. So that's, you know, that's a, a good workaround there. There are a couple of things that you're saying that I think are really important. And the one is that your example of I can talk about my eating, an eating disorder, a past eating disorder, because I had experienced one that goes back to kind of your brand, your personal brand that you're talking about, like what things, you know, am I passionate about? What things do I stand for? What things do I have experience in that aren't necessarily related to your book and its themes, but other ideas and that can create a sort of editorial grid in many ways of things that you could talk about. Is that a good way to put it? Or how would you put it? That That's a perfect summary. Yes. Yeah. The other thing that I noticed in some of your writing is that you're really against the awkward newsletter. <laughs> I loved that title. I thought it was a great title. So what is an awkward newsletter and how do you actually make a newsletter letter not awkward and actually beneficial for marketing your brand and your writing? Okay. So <laughs> obviously we're getting to the, like the personal opinion arena here. Like what is an awkward newsletter to me versus you is going to be different. It's going to be different from genre to genre because certain audiences of certain genres are completely comfortable with things that others aren't. But this is the number, this is the issue that I had. I, I shared earlier that, you know, I used to look at all genres and I kind of found that fiction was forced to just follow the road that was clearly created for nonfiction. Newsletters were clearly created for nonfiction. I, I, I can say, I, like, I don't know the actual history of them or anything like that, but it's, it's pretty 
obvious to me that the idea of email marketing, we usually get newsletters because we either we're looking at the product like people are selling to us or they're educating us, right? So if you write a nonfiction book, each newsletter is you teaching me another step. How does that translate to fiction? And then fiction writers would come up with these kind of over the top ways of trying to be a creative writer in a space where they they weren't selling anything, or maybe they were selling their books directly if they were an indie author, but they only had one or two books. There's only so many times you can push that. Or they were trying to kind of do these funky loop-de-loops to make their their angle work for newsletters. And they were having a hard time growing their email lists because of that, because people weren't opening them because they weren't that interesting. And so, you know, they would do things like putting a cut chapter and, and making a cut chapter one of the newsletters, or they would like write their newsletter in the voice of one of their characters, which I will say does work better for the kind of fantasy genre of fiction. But the other genres, it, it really, it feels a bit immature for some of the other genres. And just little things like that, that were not actually serving the purpose. It wasn't serving the purpose of the newsletter and their audience, their fans didn't necessarily want it. So yes, I was very, I am, I am very against the awkward newsletter. And so I've done a lot of, of teaching and writing about okay, how can we as, as say fiction writers or even as poets, how do we make this better? And what is the role then of email marketing going to be? Because email marketing does really well, like statistically, if you sell something on social media, you're usually looking at like a one and a half maybe a 2% conversion rate, as in how many people who follow you ever buy. Whereas email marketing, it's about 2 to 5%. So there's an obvious desire there for authors to make newsletters work. And I just say, think of your newsletter subscribers as more like super fans. Like they are above the level of I followed you on social media because I'm, I especially like, I even want to get my in, like stuff from you in my inbox. And so write to the people who are your super fans, write them a little essay, write them kind of a note about your life. Not so much so that like, don't do the, this is what I had for supper thing, or this is my writing is not going well and I'm suffering from writer's block. I'm so sad. None of that stuff, but just write a little essay really, because you're a writer. What do they want to get from you is they want to get more writing. So writers have to write. You have to write anyway. Right. And so I encourage fiction writers to to be writing short form content, even if they're novelists on the side, regardless. And you should be sending that short form content to get published in journals and magazines. But we all know that as we are writing essays, not all of them are home runs. Right. Not all of them are A material. They're B or C material. You can still have use that B and C material and turn that into a newsletter. Let let that be the thing you give away for free definitely not your A material because you want to use that to attract new people. You want to use that to boost your credibility in the industry by getting published. Like If you have something that could be published in the Atlantic, don't send it in your newsletter. But all the other stuff, instead of putting it on the cutting room floor, send it out to your newsletters and it's still, it's still beautiful work. That is so hopeful and wonderful and, and helpful. Just a quick question. Would you even like recommend doing any sort of like background and how you developed a character or a plot line? Would you let people in on the creative process behind the scenes or no, you wouldn't do that? Is that too gimmicky? Is that too awkward? (laughs) If you can do it in one or two sentences as part of something else, perhaps. So you were, you were referencing kind of on my website, I've got a bunch of resources and I have a whole huge article on newsletters and then a sample newsletter right, where I I pretend that I was the poet Walt Whitman and like, what would Walt Whitman have written in a newsletter if he were alive today? And I talked about that. Like, I don't, even though he's a poet, I don't necessarily, if I was subscribed to his newsletter, I don't think I necessarily need poetry from him. Maybe a little bit, but again, his poetry would be submitted to, to poetry journals. It wouldn't be sent for free to his newsletter subscribers. And the truth is like, I've already read his poetry and I it's magic. And I would be worried. I don't want the magic to be lost by him kind of over explaining what went into the poem or the process of the poem or, or too much of the background. That's not to say I'm not interested in a little bit of it. But I don't want the magic that changed my life when I read his poetry 
gone because now I'm thinking about him and his work too analytically. I want to step back just for a second and explain to our audience fiction writers who may be really early in starting to write fiction, explain what a quote indie author is, unquote, and maybe talk about the opportunities for publishing in different journals and publications. Awesome. I'd be happy to do that. So once upon a time, the only way to be an author was you wrote a story and then you tried to pitch that story to an agent. And you very likely never heard back from that agent unless you were very lucky. And if you were lucky, you got an agent. And then that agent would then pitch your book to different publishing companies and try to land you a publishing deal. And that's how you would get published. And that's the way it still is today. Then self-publishing comes on the scene, mostly thanks to Amazon, who allowed authors to just publish directly through their services. And that has taken its own huge journey and has its own pros and cons, just like traditional publishing does. And then once we had traditional publishing and self-publishing, a bunch of people came up in the middle. And now we have hybrid publishing. We have small publishers who are still presses, just like the big guys, but they're small and they don't necessarily require you to have an agent. You can pitch directly to the press. So now there's all these options, right? There's, there's traditional, there's getting published in a small press, there's hybrid publishing, and then there's self-publishing. But self-publishing had a lot of stereotypes attached to it because people, you know, can people, there's no barriers to entry, right? Which for all its pros has also some cons. And so there was a lot of stick of, of negative stigma around self-publishing. And part of the rebranding that self-published authors have gone through is they prefer to be referred to as indie authors, just the way that small presses are considered independent presses. So you might publish through a small press, so you're not self-published, but your press is considered an independent press, right? So you still pitched directly to them. You didn't have an agent. They're an independent press. Whereas if you self-publish, a lot of times you hear self-published authors refer to themselves as independent authors or indie authors because they are both the author and the publisher at that point. So really, indie author is another way of saying self-published author. Do you have a resource for finding those independent publishing houses? Writer's Digest, I believe, has lists in Publishers Weekly, all of the trade magazines in the publishing industry. If you search through their website, they all have articles that are, here's a list of agents, here's a list of publishers. And that is one way to find kind of a, those small presses and independent presses. University presses are also considered in part of that. But usually these presses have a specialty, right? They are either, we publish authors in this specific area, right? So my husband is published through a small press that's a university press out of the North Dakota State University. So their uh, scope is the area that they serve, right? Your, your book has to be set in our region, in North, Northern Minnesota and North Dakota. There are also presses that are like, we publish for women. We publish queer voices, right? They're all down to specialty. So the fastest way to find them is to just Google what your book is about and put publishing house after the word. And then you're going to see all these options pop up because what you're really looking for is where, where your book would be a good home for. And so the best way you can do that is know your book really well. And you're like, oh, my book is about this. I have a friend who started a press that is about all about being an outdoorsman, right? It's anything about, about nature and outdoors. David, your book would fit in very well in his scope. The idea would be, yeah, what is your book about? And then look, Google presses that focus on that thing. And that's going to be even faster than going through a trade magazine list. In people's heads, we're all going to sell 10 million and we're going to be able to buy that home in Vail, right? So with good enough marketing... And somebody comes to you and says, you know, my expectation, I'd love to sell 300 copies. Is that realistic? Or if somebody comes within a year or let's say over the lifetime of the book, I'd like to sell 500. What's a realistic for a first time indie author? Let's say that. And what's just stupid crazy? That's a really hard question to ask. At the risk of sounding a little bit like a snob, 
it depends on the quality of the book. Like, like how good of a writer are you is, is a really honest question you have to ask. I'm not here to say that you can't still be an author if you're not this great kind of literary voice. Of course not. But realistic is based on the quality of your book and realistic is based on any reach you already have, any networks you already have is kind of a marketing way of saying that, like how many friends and acquaintances and followers would be interested in buying your book right away before you do any new marketing. That's going to change that number substantially. 500 copies is not that hard. I think that's very realistic to do, especially if you're willing to invest money. If you're willing to put some some marketing dollars down, that's not a hard one to hit. Unrealistic, even 10,000 copies. Yes, that's unrealistic, but I could get you there if you had the reach and the quality of book that that would that would have that kind of snowball effect over time. So it sounds like it's kind of this equation. It's like your existing reach, the quality of writing, and how much work you're willing to put in and some resources. So are you willing to do like Amazon ads? Are you willing to do any sort of other type of publicity? What other types of things can you invest money in to have a little bit further reach, especially in the fiction area, creative writing area? So there are a couple really important strategies that really have a powerful, powerful effect on sales. One of them is getting featured or mentioned or taking an ad out in any kind of email list from a from a company that features books. So there are several companies that the most common is called BookBub, but there's a lot of other ones where their entire business is just email marketing and they email fans of books, right? They email they email readers and readers have signed up and subscribed to these newsletters based on the genre they like to read. And they're basically like good deals newsletters, right? They're not just sending out newsletters to say, oh, a book came out. They're saying, you could get this book for only $2.99 if you order it this week, right? Stuff like that. Some of these companies have such massive email lists that you get huge sales. Now you have to push your book on sale in order to get you know this. And, it's a, and these are paid opportunities. These companies that have curated these lists are not recommending your book for nothing. They're going to make you pay for it. But this is how a lot of people end up on bestseller lists. I've gotten clients on like to be like the bestseller status on Amazon, say, by simply leveraging these lists because they go directly to people who would want to read your book, right? They're segmented based on the genre you read, but also the readers want to read books today. That's why they open that email. When you send out just a general ad, if you just do an ad on, say, social media, it goes to a cold target audience that is busy scrolling through pictures today. They're not ready to read right now when they see your ad. When somebody opens an email from somewhere they've already subscribed to, from a place that is only exists to tell them there's an opportunity to read a book, they're doing it because they want to read a book. And so your, your bang for your buck goes so much farther. And so that's, that's one big one. The other place you can invest money is trade reviews. Trade reviews are when these, the kind of big trade magazines in the industry. So think Publishers Weekly, you may have heard of Kirkus, Booklist, Library Journal. All of these places are magazines that exist to help the publishing industry succeed, right? They're they're magazines that go to other business people inside the industry. So bookstore owners get these magazines, librarians get these magazines, and they do reviews. They do professional um, reviews of your book. And if you can get your book reviewed in them, it can get it seen by, like I said, booksellers, librarians, etc. However, a lot of people worry that they're going to throw money away if they do this because everybody's getting a, you know their book reviewed in Publishers Weekly. We're not all getting featured in the homepage of the Publishers Weekly website by any means. So you'll, you'll spend money because some of these do cost money, but then you won't, you won't see a bump in sales. And then authors are like, oh, I, I, I wasted this money. But the truth is you need the review to get other things. It's not getting a review in Publishers Weekly because then... 14 bookstore owners automatically order your book wholesale to sell in their stores. That's not usually how it happens. It usually it just it it increases the merit of the quality of your book. So when you create any marketing materials, posters, flyers, your website, 
Canva, you know, social media cards created in Canva that go on your social media accounts, you list that you've got a publisher's weekly recommendation. When you approach bookstores yourself, you make sure that you list quotes from the publisher's weekly review, et cetera. And it increases the likelihood that then these people will will buy your book. And so that to me is money well spent for the long-term strategy. Now, not all trade reviews cost money. So you can try to apply for free trade review from Publishers Weekly. It's just that they get so bombarded with so many books, it's unlikely. And they all offer like a paid track where if you pay, you for sure will get reviewed. You won't necessarily get a good review, which of course would be unethical. They can't, you can't pay for a good review, but you can pay to, to get a spot guaranteed for your book. And honestly, even that we're into kind of a bit of an ethics game. I know I don't really love that either, but unfortunately that's, that's the way that these magazines have had to play the game in order to get everybody the reviews that, that they want or need and indie authors in particular. Because you are an indie author, people already don't trust yet that you're a good writer. They're skeptical because you've had to go through no gatekeepers. So this is a way where, yeah, you're going to have to pay a little bit of money, but it's a gatekeeper that'll say, hey, this book is actually good. It goes back to that foundation again of great marketing is founded on great writing. And I, I feel like so many writers don't know if their writing is great they they think or they think it is, but then they send it off for a review and the review isn't as positive as they were thinking because the writing just isn't great. Is there a way that you can that you can as a writer get a real sense of your writing before you you start down this path? Oh, I think you should. I think it's so important. Especially, yeah, if we're focusing right now on, on the indie author side, on the self-publishing side. You have to have your book read and read and reread and read and read again by other people. Every author does this, right? But especially indie authors, in the traditional world, they have a built-in system where the book is getting read by multiple professional voices already, and yours isn't. So not only do you have to have early readers that are just friends that you trust, but I think that you should also pay money for, for that too. I think it's important to work with a professional editor, of course, maybe a professional book coach, which is somebody who helps you with the writing process. But it's really important to get to get feedback, but also help in, in making it better. I wouldn't necessarily pay for somebody to just tell me, oh, this isn't very good. This sucks. Sorry. I would pay for somebody who says, this is at, you know, level C, let's work together and get it up to like a B, B plus, you know, together and I'll walk you through this. There's so many mentorship programs out there. You guys, even in the traditional side of things, like I have a friend who for her debut book just got published with an imprint of HarperCollins, right? One of the biggest names out there. And when I asked her how she did it and how she even got an agent, because it's so hard these days, before she got an agent, she was accepted into a writing mentorship program, right? And so she worked one-on-one in an intensive writing mentorship with somebody who was, you know, a better writer than her and farther down the path and published. And and that person helped her create a phenomenal story. And so all of these steps, this is what it takes to be a writer is there's so much early work just in craft alone. Yes, of course, you can read craft books and you can read Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird. You can read Stephen King's On Writing. Uh, you can read Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way. All of those are brilliant. But really, like, you're never going to know if your writing is good until you do it. And you do it with like a mentor who is good, not just like a friend you can trust. Like, I don't, I, I don't let a lot of people see my personal writing, especially in the early stages. And I don't have, I'm not part of a writing group or anything like that. I've tried before. I've not found a group that makes sense for my style and my genre and who really like felt like a good fit. And all of it was just distracting for me actually writing. Every time I had to go to a writer's group, it was just a, a couple hours out of my day that I was not spending with my kids or writing myself. And so I stopped doing it. So be careful with those early readers, also called beta readers, that it's, it shouldn't just be a friend. It should be people who you know are good at writing and you know are re- that they recognize your genre too because it's different to write literary fiction versus poetry versus YA versus fantasy 
versus women's fiction. Like, like these are all very, very different. And what is cliche in one genre is is a is an important trope in another genre. So you have to be genre specific. That's incredible advice. And we always talk about being really clear on your reader too, that you don't want proofing feedback. You don't want edits, things like that. You really want somebody to give you substantial feedback on the essence of your writing, the quality of your writing, if the narrative arc makes sense, if there are cliches, all those things that you mentioned, it's so important to get the right kind of writer and to get professional support. You said it, Melissa, the commitment to good marketing starts with great writing. Let me ask you this. Do you ever, somebody makes a pitch to you and you read what they, they have, let's say an indie author, and you say, you know what, this isn't a good fit. And do you do that because you realize that no matter how much you help them, they can't sell the book? Or how do you deal with people that you go, man, I, I would love to help you, but ah, man, I just don't see how this is going to sell. A couple of things on that. So right now, because I'm, I can call myself a book marketing coach. So I'm mostly a consulting voice. Like I'm going to teach you how to market this yourself. I'm not going to do the marketing for you. So the way I can word that then and without feeling like a like a mean person <laughs> is instead of saying, you know, I there's no I won't take you on as a client. There's just me giving you a realistic expectation of how much work you're going to have to do. But the truth is, you can market any book. There's tons of really bad books out there that are selling really, really well because they're marketed really, really well. And so this is really when we talk about like the foundation of good marketing as a great book. When I talk about minimalist marketing, the only way you can be a minimalist marketer is if your book sings, if it is fabulous. Anything, if you have a mediocre book, then the marketing is going to be a lot more effort. It's going to be maximalist. Yes. You're going to have a maximalist effort in order to get that book out there. And unfortunately, there are just a lot of there's a lot of sleazy stuff that I see out there. It's really easy to pay for a really nice cover design. You get a decent description written on Amazon and then look like you have a really professional book and then people buy it and it's an awful book. But your book is selling well because they don't know it's bad until they've bought it. So your sales, your sales numbers look good, but the book doesn't have momentum and minimalist marketing requires natural momentum, right? You have to do only a little bit of work because the book is in some ways, you could even say selling itself because word of mouth buzz is being is surrounding your book because people are reading it and they're saying, this is changing my life. Like I have to tell my best friend about how much I love this book. They're saying, I want to post about this on social media, even though I'm not an influencer and nobody's paying me. I'm just going to tell people that I enjoyed this, this great book this evening because your book impacted them because it was great. And so you really need the great book in order to have a, a kind of slower, a slower marketing effort. So as you think about when you work with people who have published with an agent, well, with a publisher, but they have an agent. So they, they have a, they have a book with one of the big five or maybe the next tier underneath that. How does the book marketing differ if it does? And having done this, let's say, with multiple traditional writers or publishers, what is your expectations of publishers or maybe a realistic, maybe put this in the frame for, for writers, what should you expect your publisher to do for you in terms of marketing? Publishers vary so, so much. Not only do they vary publisher to publisher, Within each publisher, there's different imprints, right? So you might be published with Penguin Random House, but the back of your book doesn't say Penguin Random House. It says it has some other logo on it. And those of us in the book industry understand that that's an imprint of Penguin Random House. And it'll explain that on like the copyright page too. But just at a glance, it doesn't say Penguin Random House. And then with, so, so those various imprints do different levels, right? And then based on, how many times you've published in the past, like how many books you have out, it'll it'll vary based on how much your publisher is willing to do and how well those books sold. It'll vary based on what your publisher is willing to do. So the people who come to me are not 
their publisher is not doing very much. So even though I've had the opportunity to, you know, visit with and be a kind of a consulting voice with people who have gotten deals with, with big five presses, they've been like debut authors at big five presses. Because nobody who's, you know, very well established, who's a multi-level bestseller needs to talk to somebody like me because their, their publisher is going to take care of them because their publisher is making a lot of money off of them. So they've got all the help they need. But if you are new and you haven't proven yourself, that same publisher is not going to help you, even though they're going to help another author that they're publishing that year. Because there's just, it's a business. There's a lot of bias and the bias is towards who's going to make us the most money. So all of that has to weigh in to how much you can expect your publisher to do. And then as you get into the smaller presses, most of them do almost nothing or next to nothing. What I usually tell authors, like kind of a baseline, that if your publisher is going to do anything, they will probably, well, first of all, they'll publish your book. And so publishing can also mean publishing in various, the various formats. So ebook, is there going to be an audio book? Stuff like that. So they'll do that piece, of course. And then they might, the, the trade review piece that I was talking about earlier, getting your book reviewed in a trade magazine. I've seen several small houses and certainly all the big ones, even debut authors, the big ones are going to send out their books to all the trade magazines for review on your behalf. If you're interested in being part of any contests, I've seen small presses be the ones that were willing to, to submit to contests. And there are always fees for contests. So often the publisher will foot that fee because it looks good on them because they're, they're going to brag next year. If your book wins a contest next year, they're going to brag to their new authors like, you know, We've had seven best, seven authors win thus and such these contests. And because the contests are often about the formatting and the cover of the book too, which was the piece they did. So they, they want that pat on their back too. So really those two things, trade reviews and contests might be all you get from a publisher. Maybe they do a little bit more, but probably not a lot. What's your take on hiring PR firm? Don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So depending on your level, again, of kind of where you're at in your author career and and what kind of publicity you're trying to get with a PR firm, the price tag is going to be quite substantial. And of course, the idea is the price tag is supposed to be worth it because the book sales will go up and you'll use the profit to pay the the PR firm. And and maybe the math works out in the end, maybe it doesn't. It really it's such it's such a gamble. Again, it comes back to like how good is your book? Like how much faith do you really have in how good of a writer you are? Because if you're going to spend thousands of dollars having somebody get you featured all over the media or, or pitch, all they can do is pitch to pitch to see if you can get on the media. The media is not letting you in without reading your book. I mean, my husband was a journalist for 10 years. He was not an arts reporter specifically, but absolutely he would get pitches for, you know, will you feature thus and such author that's in your area? He never interviewed an author without first reading the book. And he was very willing to talk to indie authors too. He didn't have a bias, you know, against self-publishing, but your book had to be good to get on the show. And so if your book isn't great and you've paid thousands, it, it, you can pay almost $10,000 to a PR from you guys. That's high end, but still, like you can drop that much money. And that person cannot necessarily, they cannot guarantee that they can get you on. And so if your book's not great, you paid that $10,000 and they got you on four shows. That math is not going to work out in the end. And also it just, PR doesn't sell, publicity doesn't sell books. P- publicity showcases your expertise and it makes you look like a big deal and maybe people will then follow you on Facebook or they will sign up for your newsletter. But very few people hear you on the radio or see you in the newspaper and then run and buy your book. There's kind of initial steps that happen. The most you'll get from from publicity is a few fans check you out. And that's great. That's not bad. I love that, actually. I think that publicity is one of the best paths to growing your author brand, but I think you have to do it yourself in order for it to not be an an expense that you can't handle. And also, we're living in an age of the personal touch, and people want access to you. And and even journalists, they love to talk to you. And so I, 
I would rather see authors learn to pitch themselves. Now, you're not going to get on Oprah that way. You're not going to get on the Today Show without a publicist representing you, of course. But if we're talking mostly to indie authors that way, I'm sorry to say most indie authors are also just, you're not getting on the Today Show anyway. So maybe that's something you build up to over time in your career. And right now you focus on kind of small to moderate publicity, which is something you can land on your own. Okay, final question, and then we'll let you go. This has been so fantastic. So much rich insight and helpful tools and thoughts. So if there's a first-time novelist working on a piece right now, and they really want to publish down the road, what should they be doing right now with their marketing, with hopes of publishing down the road? Because we always talk about how you need to be thinking about marketing now, not once the book is done. So what would you say, what are some simple things that they could start doing today? So I am a little unique in my perspective on like, when do you start marketing? I do think it's before you get published. But I I say you can start a little later than other marketers, just because, again, this is the difference between fiction and nonfiction. If you're nonfiction, you are already an expert in your field before you've written the book. That's why you chose to write the book that you're an expert on, because you were already an expert in it. If you weren't, what business do you have writing a book on that topic? So there's not really imposter syndrome for a nonfiction author to be talking about to start any kind of branding in terms of social media, in terms of newsletter, in terms of uh, maybe you want to start a podcast, like you're already an expert. So of course, you know, it's okay to start kind of curating some fans. But I understand why it's hard for fiction writers to hear that and to not feel weird about that. Because if I'm still working on my very first book, like who am I to start an author Facebook page? I'm not actually an author yet, right? So I usually say, finish your first draft and don't worry about it. The most, because as we've been talking about, the most important piece of marketing is making sure you have a great book. Why distract yourself with stuff like platform building? If you're building a platform, you're not writing. And there's no way that you can build a platform to the enviable numbers that'll land you an agent in time anyway. Like you can't start a brand new TikTok account or Twitter page and then have numbers that would make an agent sit up in even two years, unless you're lucky and you're really good at it and you have been taking classes on how to kind of grow that social media media following. But if you're doing that, you're not writing. The effort it takes to build up a big brand is massive. And it takes a while. And so you need to just write. So write your book. Now, after you have a first draft, if then you want to start thinking about marketing, because you know there's a story there, like you have gotten to the end, at least in one version of your story, and now you're just revising, then I think you can. I think you can start, you can start playing around with social media or a newsletter. You certainly should start networking. Networking as in building relationships in the business. You should start, you know, making sure you're friends with your local bookstore owners and your local librarians and your any reporters in your area that cover the arts beat. You should be going to writers' conferences and making friends with other writers. At writers' conferences, often they bring in agents. You should be shaking the hands of those agents. Like you should be doing all of those things. Networking is the number one first thing that every every business person should do, but especially authors, because we all need each other. And so that's the piece that I would start with. So start with write your first draft without distraction, then start networking. Um, And when you network, usually you want to follow up with people and you need a social media presence to do that in order to maintain the relationship you built with writer, you know, Joe Smith that you hit it off with at the conference, you guys have to follow each other on Instagram. So then you have to have an Instagram page, right? So, so set up the social media, get yourself out there in the writing world and go from there. Fantastic. Emily, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been more than we could have expected. And we're so grateful for you sharing your expertise and just wisdom that you've gained throughout the years. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. It was really an honor to be on your show today and to meet both of you. All right, Dave, it's time for our words of the episode. How about you go first today? Okay, my word is raconteur. I was wondering how you pronounce that. Can you spell it? R-A-C-O-N-T-E-U-R. So raconteur. So it's not, it's not raconteur, it's raconteur. 
this means just somebody who tells anecdotes in a skillful and amusing way. It's kind of a yarn spinner. So I grew up in North Dakota and on the prairies of North Dakota. And so we go back every year and we go, we hunt pheasants. And I've done it with my dad's cronies who are almost all dead now. My dad's still alive. He has one or two that are still alive. And we'll stand around in the morning after the hunt or later in the day after the hunt, if we're hunting geese or ducks, and they'll tell Oli and Lena jokes, or they'll tell a story of a past hunt. And it's never about shooting or it's, it's all these fun little stories. And we, my dad's, one of my dad's best friends, his name is Clayton, and he is a delightful raconteur. We split our sides listening to him tell stories. And my brother and I and my dad, we try to tell stories, but we do not have the pacing. We do not have the, you know, however it is you, whatever you need to tell a good story, we cannot do it. So we love, we love listening to Clayton the raconteur. I am not a good raconteur. You're a much better raconteur than I am. So mine is another funny word that I was introduced to by one of my friends who is a wordy. We're always swapping words with each other. And it's sobriquet, S-O-B-R-I-Q-U-E-T, sobriquet. And it means a person's nickname. So my sobriquet is McGillicuddy. And it was given to me as a teenager by my father. And my sister called me McGillicuddy growing up. So my sobriquet is McGillicuddy. It's simply a person's nickname. That's great. Sobriquet. Two new words for us today. I love it. All right. Well, I think that's a wrap for this episode. I am Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. Write.